Thank you very much, Senator, for joining us on Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk. You made a very careful statement today about your decision, and I'm wondering if you might share with our audience why you made the decision that you did. Well, as you know, I, I uh, was in the Democratic Party primaries for president and, and decided in late October that I would withdraw from the primaries. And uh, we spent three months examining what it would take to put an independent candidacy into play in a way that would have to have uh, the potential to actually succeed. We spent a lot and a lot of meetings talking with uh, people who had done uh, ballot access or to get on ballots and, uh, all across the you know, every every state and jurisdiction, etc. And it was a close call, but I don't think that we could have done this at the time left and the money that it would take in a real, realistic way. So I decided that I would not be pursuing an independent candidate. I guess money played a, a key role, and so Mayor Bloomberg has an advantage over you in that regard. Yes, he does. If I had a, if I had a billion dollars to, to spend, I would be running right now. <laughs> have, did you ever uh, consider or have you had any contact with him? Could the two of you pair up on a, on a run? I haven't, I haven't had that discussion. Do you think a third party really is realistic given today's political climate? I believe that both uh, political parties uh, are in need of major, major adjustments. When you have 43% of the American people to consciously not aligning with either party and in a way that we haven't really seen before, then something has to happen. And we're seeing this election cycle, the, the frustration that the people have with the process by, by moving toward candidates like Bernie Sanders, who's a good friend of mine, and, and uh, Jeb Bush. And either the parties are going to have to readjust their programs or it's quite possible that you can have a third party. The, the legal requirements in each state make it very hard to have a third party, but you, you would need a few years to put it together. But one or the other's got to happen. We've got too many people who feel disenfranchised and who are either uh, voting as uh, protests or just deciding not to vote at all. I get a lot of mail from people saying, if you're running, I'm not voting. I mean, if you're not running, I'm not voting. Our listeners are members of the World Affairs Councils all across the country. And the fact is, is that the winners of the New Hampshire primary are extremely weak in foreign policy. In fact, they really can't even tell you who their advisors are. In fact, they avoid telling you. How is it that foreign policy in this time, when you have the issues that are taking place, whether it be ISIS or uh, Vladimir Putin or what's happening with the uh, stronger role of China, that foreign policy is essentially being ignored? Well, I don't think it's limited to these two candidates. I think across the board, the people who are running for the presidency this year are either uh, unfamiliar or have a foreign policy record that uh, does not work in their favor if you want them to be your foreign policy president. And the reason you're seeing this, I think, is because the foreign policy 
environment has become so much so much more complex since the end of the Cold War that it's 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 difficult for a lot of people who've come up through uh, other areas in politics to have followed, and the danger. Um, in, in addition to the obvious one of people who haven't had experiences, that we continue to push the default button and we have this uh, unelected hierarchy of foreign policy in Washington that really there's no difference between the Democrats and the Republicans on them. You, you take a look at who the advisors end up being when you don't have that kind of experience. We need to have a clear enunciation of a new foreign policy direction in this country. Let me ask you this. Has too much of the power on foreign policy essentially been granted to the executive branch and the legislative branch does not have the role that you deem that it I wrote, a, I wrote a long piece on that um, a couple of years ago. It's, a, it's the only major piece of any length that I wrote when I left the Senate, talking about the abdication of uh, power from the Congress to the executive branch. And uh, you saw it in the Bush administration with the presidential signing statements where Congress would pass something and uh, President Bush would sign sign a piece of legislation and say, by the way, I don't agree with all these things down here. But you see it more directly with the Obama administration, where it's way too much uh, exercise of uh, unilateral uh, decision-making in foreign policy. You saw it the way they went into Libya, and you saw it again on uh, the Iran deal. That should never have been an executive agreement. In the last few days, the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth has hosted both Ambassador Ryan Crocker and Secretary of De former Secretary of Defense um, uh, Bob Gates. Both spoke about the need to establish a no-fly zone in Syria and also said the United States has to take a leadership role. Could you comment on both of those ideas? First... If I were to be considering a decision like that as president, I would, would want to bring my military, uniform military leaders into the discussion. This hasn't happened enough on a lot of the uh, issues in, in that part of the world. Uh, second, I would be very careful about putting the American military into a situation where almost by necessity they would end up having to expand their presence in order to defend uh, what at the beginning would seem to be like a humanitarian uh, activity. So I would just be very careful about that before I, before I would support it. You know, you've written and, and talked quite a bit about, especially when you were running for the nomination, about how the social contract, in a sense, has been broken and how difficult it is for people to move into the middle class, largely or in part because of the loss of so many manufacturing jobs. If you had run and if you were had been elected, what would you do as quickly as possible to improve the lot for people moving into the middle class? I, there are two separate 
arguments that tend to play out when it comes to uh, the, the situation that we we have and the, uh, the, the divergence of wealth in our, in our country. The first is that the government should not mandate equality. The government should, get, should not get into the business of picking who wins and who loses in our society. And the other is that you, you must have a sense of fairness about getting the rewards out of a society like ours. Uh, I, I don't believe it's necessary to mandate uh, equality in, in, in programs, which is I think, too often the, uh, the approach of a lot of my Democratic friends. I, but I do think that we have gotten into a situation where the people at the very top, and I'm not talking about the 1%, you take a look at the half of 1%. We did data on this when I was in the Senate, um, have been able to accumulate a large amount of wealth on what they call passive income, uh, investment income, particularly uh, you know, stocks, capital gains, etc. Since this economic crash of uh, 08 into 09, since 09, when it, when it bottomed out, the stock market has almost tripled. In fact, it had tripled in, until the last couple of weeks when it started going down. And average wages and salaries have actually gone down. Uh, it, it, to me, it is, it is fair to uh, tax passive income the same level that you, you tax uh, income, ordinary, yeah, ordinary earned income. That would be one of the first signals that, that, that should be sent. And before we conclude, uh, in your remarks just a few minutes ago to the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, you spoke about your concern on cyber terrorism. Well, cyber warfare in general, terrorism is a subset of cyber activities. Uh, the ability of um, different entities around the world to to penetrate your structures, which is cyber warfare or cyber terrorism, but also to uh, to break into all of your systems that you believe are secure for informational purposes and intelligence purposes and, and these sorts of things. And a third piece when it comes to, to terrorism is we are not going to defend ourselves against terrorist acts by putting a policeman in every building in the United States. You, you, the first wall of defense is to have excellent intelligence and ability to, to uh, listen, quite frankly, to what uh, these people who would do us harm are doing well before they decide to do it. And I, I believe, as, as I said during the, during the talk, that uh, our greatest daily concern inside the country is making sure that we are able to defend against those sorts of things. Thank you so much for being with us. You. You've been listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth and the World Affairs Councils of America. Thanks for listening.